Again, my name is Marshall, and uh, we teach through passages of the Bible like that long and beautiful one, uh, because uh, in the Bible, uh, you regularly are taught every week, every page of the Scripture teaches that because of Jesus and what the Bible teaches, you, friends, are enough, you can change, and one day you can be all you were made to be. And friends, that is good news. So let's look at this story. Before we do, let me pray for us. Our great God, as we look back on this ancient and old story, so removed from us in time and geography and custom, but so near to our hearts in terms of our experience of our families and even of you. God, teach us, teach those who listen and teach the one who teaches by your word, for your grace. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my favorite movies is the, it's actually a quote from my favorite movie, uh, Casablanca, Casablanca, but one of my favorite movies uh, from the 1990s is The Usual Suspects. Do you remember the story, The Usual Suspects? I'm going to spoil it. You've had 30 years to watch it, so uh, I don't feel bad about spoiling it, okay? Um, Usual Suspects, it's a story in short of how a master criminal, Again, who is named Kaiser Sose, he gathers a group of criminals into a lineup, right, in a, in a police station. One of them is a car thief. One of them is a bank robber. One of them is a petty criminal. They have nothing in common as criminals, but he brings them together. And he uses these everyday criminals with their brokenness, but without their knowing, to accomplish his evil will. That's the story of usual suspects, using people in their brokenness to accomplish someone's evil will. Well, that plot line is like an evil shadow of the story you just heard read. We're doing a sermon series on the life of Jacob, but in this case, it's a shadow because in this case, God uses broken people in their brokenness to accomplish his holy and perfect will. Now, at one level, this story is deeply attractive because what we're going to see is, as the sermon title indicates, that grace by God by His grace wins. God wins by His grace. God wins. Grace wins. It's so attractive. But as I alluded to last week, when you really dig under the surface, grace can be and is deeply offensive and massively misunderstood. Do you remember the story from 2019? Uh, the billionaire Robert Smith was speaking at the graduation for Morehouse College. He was speaking at the graduation, 400 students. And in the middle of his speech, he announced that he was going to forgive all of the debts of the people who were graduating that day. Turns out the number was $34 million. And he totally forgave $34 million worth for 400 or so students at Morehouse College, 2019. And at first, the, the reaction in the, in the population, maybe when you heard that, you're like, that's amazing. That is so great, right? I mean, here's this person who is not obligated, giving money, as it were, to people who are not especially deserving, and all uh, and he, because he accepts their debts and cancels uh, their bill. But as people started to think more deeply about the story, they started to think, well, well, what about other people? What about others who weren't there that day in May of 2019? Imagine you're the class of 2019. You had a big debt, and because of that, you worked really hard, and you finished in three and a half years, and you graduated in December. Or imagine, or imagine that you're class of 2018, and you're kind of a slacker, and you took four, not four years, but five to graduate, so you graduate in May of 2019, and you get the debt 
forgiveness, right? Grace is offensive. That was a gracious act, and that's a positive echo of what we see in this passage. Because this story, this story of God's grace in Genesis 27 and the surrounding verses, we both feel the offense of grace and the great comfort of grace. This fall we're calling our sermon series Amazing Grace. And the first half of the sermon series is the life of Jacob, which is an illustration of grace. The second half of the fall will be the book of Romans 1 through 8, an explanation of grace. The illustration and the explanation. And the definition for grace that we're using is, uh, I've added to a, a, a definition by a pastor named Talian Chavidian that is this. This is mostly his language. I'm going to quit coding him, by the way, I'm, I, okay? When I say this week to week, okay, I'm quoting somebody else, okay? But not all. Some of it's added. You get it. Whatever. Too much coffee. Grace is unconditional acceptance of undeserving persons by an unobligated God, which slowly, usually painfully, by the power of God, makes people more like God himself. Okay? So these stories we're looking at the life of Jacob, they shape our imagination. How we see others, how we see ourselves, and how we see God. So this morning, what I want us to see are just two things. Undeserving persons and an unobligated God who triumphs by grace. Undeserving persons and an unobligated God who triumphs by grace. First, four undeserving persons. There's four human characters in this story. The first, the first undeserving person is Isaac. Now, if you don't remember, Isaac is the son of the great patriarch Abraham. And when we meet him here, he is an old man. Chapter 27, verse 1 says he was old and his eyes are dim. Now, like all the characters in this story, Isaac is a mixed. And by the way, I'm probably going to misuse Isaac and Jacob intertwinably. Try to, I'm going to try to do right, but if I miss the names, there's a lot of names here, okay? But like all the characters in this story, Isaac is a mixed bag. There are things he do, do, does that are uh, commendable, and there are things that he does that are reprehensible which makes him a lot like you and me, okay? And in Isaac's case, God takes, he takes God's blessing seriously. In chapter 26, verse 24, we did not look at this. This was the chapter that we skipped over. We did 25 last week. This is 27. In 26, God appeared to Isaac two times. He appears to Isaac two times, and the second time, God himself speaks to Isaac and says this, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, I am with you, Isaac. I will bless you and multiply your offering. And Isaac believes that blessing. He believes God. He knows that he is an inheritor of the mighty promises of God made to his father Abraham and now to himself. The promise, the blessing to be a great nation, to be blessed and to bless other people. Isaac and his bones know this and it is good. Right? And we need to give him credit for this. He takes God's blessing seriously and he wants to pass that blessing on to his offspring. But the problem is, God has said, and this was last week's sermon, the promise is for your younger son, Jacob. And Isaac loves his older son, Esau. Chapter 25, 28 had said this, that Isaac loved Esau. This sounds shallow. Isaac loved Esau because he loved the wild game that he cooked. He was a man of outside, Esau was. He loved the fact that he was a hunter and cooked this wild game. That's what Esau lo Isaac loved about Esau. Now, that seems pretty shallow, doesn't it? To love a child for what they do for you. But it cuts kind of close if you think about it. We want our children to be star athletes, 
outstanding students, great money makers, original artists, great cooks, successful as young adults, and their achievements, they tend to serve us sometimes, don't they? They make us feel better about us. So let's not be too hard on Isaac. But again, he believes the blessing. That's a big deal. He just doesn't like God's choice. And what he does is he calls a secret meeting with the son he loves, his older son Esau. Now, a blessing ceremony is supposed to be a big ceremony. It's like a wedding or a first communion. There's supposed to be a lot of witnesses there. Everybody in the family is supposed to be there. There's supposed to be a big party afterwards, you know, like, you know, streamers and fireworks. It's supposed to be a big public deal. But Isaac tries to sneak it in. In chapter 27, verses 1 to 4, Isaac calls Esau to himself in private, and he says, basically, I'm getting old. I want you to go hunting, kill me something that I like, cook it, and bring it back. Real quick aside, one of the words that occurs most in this passage is the word delicious food. Isaac is a sensual man. He's very sensuous. And he says, basically, take this, make this delicious food, and bring it to me, and I will bless you before I die. Isaac is portrayed as a weak and sensuous man whose main fault is he contradicts God's revealed word. He does not like what God has said, and so he does something different. Undeserving person number one. Undeserving person number two, Rebecca. Now, Rebecca is the smart one in this story. She turns out to actually be too clever by half. But in this story, she largely has the men in this story on a string. She bypasses Esau, she fools and manipulates Isaac, and she controls Jacob. But make sure you understand this. Rebecca does deserve some credit. She knows the danger of marrying someone who does not follow the Lord, who is not of God. Chapter 26, verse 34, the very first verse that we read this morning, Esau, her older son, has married not one but two pagan wives. And so 2635, it provides all the commentary that we need. They made, these two pagan wives, they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. And so the very last verse of chapter 27, verse 20, chapter 27, verse 46, Isaac said, Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of these Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of these, what good will my life be to me? Now, but more to the point today, okay? Rebecca, if you remember the story last week, if you weren't here, she heard the voice of God in chapter 25, and he said, I will bless your younger son, the son that you love, Jacob. He will be the one who is blessed. He will be the one who's blessed. But here in verse 5, she hears through the tent wall that her husband is trying to upend God's word and give the blessing not to her younger son, as God commanded, but to her older son, Esau. Now, instead of trusting God to accomplish his purpose and work this out, what does she do? She concocts a scheme to steal the blessing by dressing her younger son Jacob up as the older son Esau, sending him in there with a good meal so that Isaac will bless Jacob. Just listen with me to the personal pronouns which speak volumes of the brokenness and dysfunction of this family. Look with me at 27.6. Rebecca, the mom, said to her son Jacob, I heard your father. She doesn't say, I heard my husband. She says, I heard your father. Speak to your brother Esau. Not my son Esau. Your brother Esau. And then in verse 8, now therefore my son. This is a divided and dysfunctional family. But to be clear, she wants a good thing. She wants the blessing of God. 
But hear this, she does not trust God to deliver on the promises for her beloved child. She doesn't trust God. She's afraid of what might happen if she does not intervene. She's so invested in this scheme. She's so invested that she's willing to put her life on the line. When Jacob begins to question whether this plot will really work, look with me at verse 13. She says this, I mean, it's a crazy statement. She says, let the cur-, verse 13, let the curse be on me, my son. Just do what I say. She loves her son so much and she's so committing to doing what she thinks God is not going to do that she is willing to be cursed so that Jacob may be blessed. What has Rebecca done? She thinks not only does she know better than God, she thinks she loves Jacob more than God does. She thinks God is holding out on Jacob, so she has to intervene because she loves Jacob more than God loves Jacob. And friends, as parents, if you are a parent or a grandparent, it is so easy to live like this. You may not say it or say it theologically, but we live like it. Always trying to protect, to control the outcomes. We say that we believe we, uh, that God loves our children more than we do, but we functionally live as if we love our children more and better than God. Yesterday, uh, school starts this week. Diana just talked about this. Uh, we have a first grader, and yesterday was the first grader back-to-school party. Parents and kids, a lot of fun, ice, uh, not ice cream, uh, donuts and coffee. And kids were doing what kids do, running around playing. But what were the parents doing, at least this parent? I was comparing notes. What, travel soccer? Piano lessons? Chess club? Now, all that is fine, and we got to think about all those things, right? But there's this lurking temptation that we in fear have to control the outcomes for our children, right? Are you willing to let God write your child's story? Friends, what our children need is not our fear. Our children need to see our faith, and they particularly need to see our faith in what we believe about God towards them. They need to see that we don't fear God. I mean, that we don't fear for them so much as we trust God to them. Ian Duguid tells a story of a mom who is tied up in knots with worry for her adult child who is wayward. But to her credit, in the midst of her worry, she said, I have to let God, write my son's story. Are you willing to let God write your children and grandchildren's story? This meant great suffering for Isaac and, oh, by the way, for Rebecca. But she had to let God be God and trust that God loves her son more than she does. But she fails to do this. And it's not just parents who struggle with this. We believe we love ourselves more than God loves us. And so we take things into our own hands. Maybe you are single and you want to be married. You know what God's word says about marrying uh, someone who doesn't profess faith. We've just heard the story of Rebecca here. But the pain of loneliness is so great that we convince ourselves that God does not love us enough. And so we look outside of those who profess faith. Or maybe you're a student and you know what God's word says about deceit. But you're like, my parents just don't get it. 
They don't get it. If they understood, they would let me do this. Therefore, I'm going to deceive them. I'm going to lie, doing what I know to be fine. God loves you more than you love yourself, and God loves your children more than you do. Can you say that? God loves my children more than I do? I want you to go home this afternoon and look in the mirror and say this. God loves my children more than I do, because he does. Undeserving person number three, Esau. Now, at first glance, Esau appears to be a victim in this story. Uh, His mom appears to despise him, and his brother is nothing short of ruthless and steals from him. But when we saw last week that Esau had sold his birthright for a pot of stew, he had forsaken the blessing. This is what the New Testament in the book of Hebrews chapter 12 says about Esau. They say, Hebrews 12 verses 15, See to it that no one is unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. You see, of all the people in the story, Esau is the one who has not valued the blessing. And in not valuing the blessing, he has made himself unworthy. If you doubted his unworthiness, you see how he responds. When he finds out what Jacob has done to him, he rages. The middle of verse 41, the days of mourning for my father approaching, then I will kill my brother Jacob. But let's look forth and finally at the undeserving person that is Jacob. Now before I talk about Jacob, I just want you to remind you who Jacob is in the grand scheme of God's plan. All right, he is the son of promise. He is the person upon whom all of God's blessings will fall. He is the one through whom the Redeemer will come. He will be renamed Israel. There's a modern nation named after him. This is Jacob that we're talking about. This great person in the history of Scripture. Besides Jesus and God, his name is probably named more than any other in all of Scripture. And in this story, he lies, he blasphemes, he takes God's name in vain, and he steals. There's so many tasty vignettes here. Let me highlight two about Jacob. First, notice this. When uh, Jacob's mom comes to him with this plan, he hesitates. Verse 11 and 12, look with me. But Jacob said to Rebekah's mother, after she's laid out the plan to him, she says, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I'm a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. He hesitates. But he does not hesitate because the plan is immoral. He doesn't hesitate because he might be defrauding his father, or his brother. He's not hesitating because he's lying to his dad. Why does he hesitate? Because it might not work. That's the only thing stopping him, right? It's too risky. And once this guy is a sniveling, snot-nosed pragmatist. No principles. No character. He's only in it for himself. And when his mom convinces him this will work, he's like, oh, I'm all in. He has no hesitations based on character or principle. And then second, when he does in fact go to his father, his dad suspects something is up. And he's like, this has happened way too quickly. He basically says, how did you do this so quickly? How did you go hunt? How did you do this? And then Jacob at the end of verse 20 says this, because the Lord your God granted me success. He blasphemes and takes the name of the Lord in vain. To bolster his, bolster his case, he uses God's name in vain. Now, I don't often do this, but real quickly, just as an aside, a little moral ethics on language. Uh, you know, don't take the Lord's name in vain. That's part of the Big Ten. Uh, the Big Ten, the Ten Commandments, right? Don't take God's name in vain. 
I really believe what I'm about to say. God may or may not care if you use the S word or the F-bomb. He may or may not care. He does care if you say OMG or even use the initials or JD or JC, GD. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. But back to our story. I want you to notice the distance that Jacob puts between himself and God. He calls, he says, he says, the Lord, your God. The Lord, your God. He's saying, Dad, that's your thing. Not so much mine. Now, before we move on to some better news, you're like, where's the grace? Okay. Uh, it's worth asking, which of these four do you identify with? Do you identify with the sensuous and weak Isaac? The deceptive and controlling Rebecca? The misguided and violent Esau? the opportunistic and unprincipled Jacob. I'll tell you personally, I resonate with Rebecca. I believe God has a good plan, but I like to take things into my own hands to make sure that all the bases are covered. Who is it for you? But there you have it, right? The heroes, the heroes of our faith. Isaac, Rebecca, Jacob. Notice this, both Isaac and Jacob they're in the hall of fame for faith. They're both. Isaac and Jacob are both. In the New Testament, there's this passage, uh, Hebrews chapter 11. We call it the hall of faith or the hall of fame for faith. And in there, you have Isaac and Jacob, right? I mean, seriously, how do these undeserving people get into the hall of fame for faith? I'll tell you how. There's one more character in this story. His name is is God. <laughs> and he is not an undeserving person. He is an unobligated God who triumphs by his grace. And this story is one of the great stories of God triumphing by his grace. And there's at least two aspects to the way that God triumphs by his grace. The first is cosmic. Okay, look with me at verses 28, chapter 28 verses 1 to 4. Isaac, by this point, Isaac has trembled at God's word. There's so many amazing things. We can't cover it all. But Isaac is done contending with God. He is submitted to God. He calls Jacob to himself, and he enters into God's plan. Verse 3, he says, God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. Jacob goes off with his father's blessing, and the blessing is preserved, despite all of this. But note, this is not just in spite of these four characters' sin. It is... Through these characters' sin. God accomplishes his plan, not just in spite of our sin, but through our sin. To quote a theologian, God handles sin sinlessly. You see, this is not just about the brokenness or the fallibility of God's chosen people. This is a reassertion of the triumph of God's plan. God wins through, because who will come through Jacob? His great, 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 great grandson is Jesus. God works through all of this. His plan is not thwarted. There is nothing you can do to thwart God's plan, either cosmically or for your life or for the life of your children. Maybe you failed as a parent. Maybe you failed profoundly morally in the past or in the present. Maybe you failed to share the gospel with somebody. Whatever it is, you can't thwart God's plans. His grace triumphs cosmically over all things. God works all things together for the good of those who love him. But because this grace is cosmic, 
because it's cosmic, it extends to every nook and cranny of the universe, which is to say it extends to you and to me. This grace is personal. Grace is personal. You know, this story is picked up in the New Testament in Romans chapter 9. Which is both, Romans is the book that explains grace, but in Romans 9, the author of Romans, picks, Paul, picks up this story to illustrate grace. And he says this, Romans chapter 9, verses 10 and following. When Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not hers, and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purposes of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Is this injustice, Paul goes on to write, on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and compassion on whom I have compassion. It depends not on human will, but on God who has mercy. Grace, again, what is it? I want this seared into your imagination this fall. Grace is when an unobligated God gives unconditional acceptance to people who are undeserving. And it's so hard for us to believe this. We tend to have what I call a saving private Ryan mentality. Do you remember the film Saving Private Ryan? A good film for everything except the opening scene. The story of Saving Private Ryan, again, I'm going to spoil it. You've had 35 years to watch it. Saving Private Ryan. It is the story of a man, Private Ryan, who had three brothers who had all been killed in World War II. And so their Department of Defense is determined that this mother will not lose her fourth and final son. They're determined to get Saving Private Ryan, Private Ryan out of France. And so they send this whole team, captained by a man named Captain Miller. And Captain Miller goes, and they get Private Ryan, and they finally get him out. But in one of the closing scenes of the movie... Uh, Captain Miller, who is dying, he's holding Private Ryan in his arms. He's laying on his back dying, and he says to him, he says, earn this. All these men have died so that you can live. Earn this. Earn this life. We've given our life for you. But the opening scene is Tom Hanks in the, sanctuary, in the, uh, in the cemetery there at Normandy. And he's, ba- he's down before the crosses, these graves, the graves of the men who gave their life for him. And he says to his wife and family, he says, have I done it? Have I earned it? And we think that's what the gospel is. We think that's what the gospel is, that Jesus died and suffered for us, and then he holds us and he says, earn this. No, that is not the gospel. Jesus has earned it, and not because of your works, but because of his. The gospel is enough. And it has nothing to do with what you have done. We don't earn it. He earned it for us. He is enough. The gospel is enough. And how is the gospel enough? How does this work? How has Jesus earned it? Well, the word that occurs most by far in Genesis 27 is the word blessing. It keeps, I think it occurs 27 times. The blessing of God is passed from Isaac to Jacob. And the descendants of Jacob, I've already told you, will come the redeemer of the world, Jesus. And Jesus is a lot like some of the characters and unlike them in other ways. Like Isaac, he is committed to passing the blessing along. And like Jacob, he dresses in clothes that are not his. Jacob took on clothes to deceive his father. But Jesus is clothed with a robe of purple so that he might die for the sins of the world. But especially in many ways, he is like Rebekah. Because Rebekah said, let the curse come upon me. 
And what did Jesus do? Instead of using that language to steal the blessing, Jesus takes the curse upon himself. He took the curse by dying for us that we might have that we might have the blessing. Jesus is enough. The gospel is enough. He has earned it. Grace is offensive, isn't it? It offends our ability. It offends everything about us, but it is so good. It is so free. So how do you link on to that? Well, I love what the old hymn says. All the fitness, all the fitness God requires is that you feel your need of him. Friends, grace, God's great grace is unconditional acceptance of undeserving persons by an unobligated God. Let me pray for us. Our great God, we thank you that your grace triumphs. It triumphs cosmically and it triumphs in our lives personally. Help us to believe that the gospel is enough. In Jesus' name, amen.